I have to be honest with you. The last few months have been very difficult for me. I know it's not a great way to start a sermon on a negative note, but let me give you some context to that. Uh, Several months ago, I was graciously given the opportunity to speak here at Harmony Bible Church. If you remember, in that sermon, we asked the question, how does the church in Maine reach Maine with the gospel? That's a question that's very urgent. And in response to that question, we examine Acts 2, 41 to 47. And my main thesis for that message was this. If you want to reach Maine with the gospel, then you need to start in the right place. And that is, for a lack of a better way to say this, doing church correctly. Acts 2, 41 to 47 gives us that blueprint. It was the first church. It was the purest church. There's no heresy, no politics, and no nonsense. Just the church doing what the Lord commanded it to do. And you'll remember that to prove my thesis, I gave you a set of statistics that I received from a Pew Research Center study done in 2014. And I demonstrated that there's a disconnect between the Acts 2 church and the confessing church in Maine today. According to the numbers, 60% of Mainers had some relationship to a confessional church body, but were falling well short in a number of important areas emphasized by the Acts 2 church. And we concluded that the confessing church in Maine is not studying doctrine, is not praying enough, and is not making true fellowship the priority that it was in the Acts 2 church. I argue that if we make the right changes based upon those numbers, then the church in Maine places itself in a position to grow in an environment in which growth has been stagnant for a very long time. Now, I truly believe that a comparison between those numbers and the Acts 2 church proved my thesis. I am completely convinced of that. However, I do feel that the Lord was not done convicting me on that point. And after I preached that sermon, several events took place in my life that I'd like to share with you right now. They hit me really hard, but I want to share them with you because these events took those numbers, which truly describe the state of the church in Maine and the urgency that's needed to preach the gospel, and it made it real to me. And more importantly, it convicted me. So several weeks after I gave that message, I went on Facebook. I was on Facebook at the time, and I like the Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary uh, Facebook page. Uh, I think it's a great school. I've actually considered looking into getting some education through that school at some point in the future. It's a school in the Midwest. It's part of the Southern Baptist um, Convention, and it is a great school. But when I went on Facebook that day, a Facebook feed popped up from that school, And it was an advertisement for a tour. And it was not just any tour. It was a tour of New England. And what they wanted to do was to take some students around and show them all of the places in New England that great preachers once preached, like Jonathan Edwards. And that really hit me. And it hit me because as a resident of Maine, I thought to myself, is this our legacy? Are we just a chapter in a history book? Are we just a place where there were once great preachers and we had a great influence and now we're not that? And I know that's not the message that Midwestern was trying to send. In fact, I think it was a really good thing and I would love to have gone on that. But as a Mainer, it just hit me. Is this our legacy? 
And so I was kind of stewing about that, and several months later, I went to school. Now, you know, a few weeks ago, I went down to Pennsylvania to do my doctorate modules. And the second week I was there, I was almost ready to go home, I got into a conversation with one of my colleagues. Um, he's from Brazil. He's in the New Testament of Studies department. And we've developed a friendship through our uh, mutual classes together. And we started talking about different ministry issues. And I shared with him the state of New England and the state of Maine and what's going on there. And I said, you know, look, I, it's hard here. You know, and I know you would understand this. You know, I kind of feel like a foreigner to the rest of the country because the South and the Midwest are very different than New England. And I said, it's really challenging to do ministry here. And he said, Dan, you know something? I've never heard that before. I have never heard how challenging it is to minister in New England. And that really struck me because I thought to myself, did he not know because he's from a culture that sees all of the United States as having a rich Christian heritage? Or is it just because nobody told him? If nobody told him, then why? And so I was kind of stewing about that a little bit as I came home, my eight-and-a-half-hour trip in a car home. And I got home, and I started looking through some of my books. And I'm a very academic person, but... I also like to read books that are very practical and very ministry-oriented. And I found this book. Um, it was on starting churches, excuse me, starting Bible studies in your home. It was called Your Home a Lighthouse. And it was really cool. And I, I'll tell you, I'm a romantic. You have to take the good with the bad here, okay? So I've always had this dream of building a log cabin and me and my wife hosting a small group study, maybe several during the week. I've always had that dream, and I wanted to build a living room big enough to house, you know, it could be converted into, you know, a small meeting place. So I've always wanted that, and so I've kind of taken interest in some of these books. And so Your Home of Lighthouse was a great book to read. Well, I got into bed, and I started reading, and I finished the first chapter. It was a great first chapter. Again, the great book was great, but the second-to-last subtitle said, Even in New England. I, I put my book down, and I said, that's it. We gotta, I know what I'm preaching on in a few Sundays. And, you know, maybe you've had an experience like mine in which the urgency of the gospel just hit you, and you realize that Maine and all of New England is in desperate need of revival. And not just a revival, but a revival started by people right here, you know, right in this state. And maybe you haven't had that yet. And to be fair... Most of us have lived in Maine our entire life, and I think we're just so used to it that we just don't think there's anything different. This is where we grew up. This is how things are. And, you know, you may, maybe you had that experience, but you're discouraged. Gospel, Maine in, excuse me, gospel ministry in Maine is very challenging. We live in part of a larger culture that is completely saturated in secular humanism and where it's not advantageous to become a Christian. Mainers are very individualistic and slow to trust. Geography makes it difficult to witness to a large group of people at one time. In response to these challenges, Christians in Maine often become fearful and hide away in their own church communities, and they go on the defensive. It's very difficult to get people to come to Maine to help because there's not a lot to entice them to come here. 
I'm not telling you anything you don't know. We all know this because we live it every day. We've lived it probably for most of our life. Of course, we also know the commission that we're called to. And these problems don't negate that commission. That's a command, not a suggestion. We need to preach the gospel in Maine. It's kind of ironic because one of the standards we often judge the success of a church is, is by the size. How many people you can get into a building. But how do you get people into a building? Some people have different ideas for that. But there is one way to really get people into a building. Um, in his book, The Art of Personal Evangelism, Will McRaney Jr. said this, Personal evangelism is the foundation of all church growth methods. Without personal evangelism, there are no churches, no pastors, no worship services. Everything begins with personal evangelism. Nothing much happens in church until some concerned Christian shares the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. The last time I spoke, we talked about the inward aspect of gospel ministry, meaning that we need to do church right. But there's another aspect of gospel ministry, an outward aspect, and that is personal evangelism. If you want the church in Maine to grow, then you not only have to share and start a biblical church, that's the foundation, remember, but you need to share your faith. The E word's a scary word. And it's not just a problem in Maine, but it's a problem everywhere. Uh, Studies tell us that 95% of believers don't share their faith. And again, that's not just here. That's everywhere. There are many reasons for this, but I feel one of the biggest reasons is that the way we've done evangelism in the past does not work effectively in the present. In the past, evangelism's often been done by um, some form of a presentation or a speech. And you quote a few Bible verses, and then there's a chance for a response. But things have changed. That doesn't work today anymore. Um, Today's world is highly influenced by both modernism, which demands a reason for one's belief, and postmodernism, which values community, genuineness, and relativism over objective truth. These two have come together to create this beast that will not succumb to the old ways that we've done evangelism. And this beast is allowed to grow in New England unchallenged for so long that it's almost become unstoppable and completely entrenched in our culture. But that creates a challenge because we do know our commission. We know what we're supposed to do as believers. And that leads us to the question, how do we witness to a culture that is completely pagan and hostile to the gospel? Turn your Bibles to Acts 17. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, which will give us the record of Paul's missionary work in the city of Thessalonica. But before we stand and read the whole passage together, please look at verse 6. Take a quick look at verse 6 here. That's that's Acts 17, verse 6. Let me read that to you. Quote, But when they did not find them, referring to Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, quote, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. End quote. Paul and Silas are described as men who turned the world upside down. This is certainly an interesting statement because at that point, Paul and Silas had only been to one other city in Europe, and that was Philippi in Acts 16, and they're already being called troublemakers. And the common reaction to all this is bewilderment. Can you imagine a missionary, any missionary, being identified as turning the world upside down in New England or in Maine? Paul must have ministered in a world completely accepting of the gospel, right? 
There's no other way he could have been that effective, right? You know, I'm convinced of this. I don't believe the world's that heavy. And I don't believe that Paul and Silas did anything outrageous either. In fact, I'm convinced that these men did absolutely nothing that any one of us in some way could not do. And I am confident that any of you can look at the example of Paul and Silas and say, I can do that. And I need to do that. And to borrow a line from your home, a lighthouse, I can do that even in New England. If you don't believe me, allow me the opportunity to convince you right now. Would you stand with me for the reading of the Word of God? Okay, this is Acts 17, 1 through 9. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, and applying of his word. You may be seated. Now, my goal for this message today is to highlight seven marks of a good evangelist. Seven marks that any of you here can do right here and right now. Are you ready? All right. Of course, one of the challenges of being an itinerant preacher is that the preacher often jumps into the middle of a text without having the benefit of previous sermons to give a context for that sermon. So with that said, allow me to give you a brief background of this account. If you look at verse 1, Luke says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. To truly appreciate this text and its application, there are two very important pieces of information that you need to know. So let's look at them. First, Acts 17 is part of what's called Paul's missionary journey, his second missionary journey. And that took place from AD 49 to 51 somewhere in that ballpark. And that was about 20 or so years following Christ's resurrection. According to Luke, Paul's destination was a city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica is located on the coast of the northern part of the Aegean Sea. You'll notice I said is, and that's because the city still exists today. It's called Salonica. In Paul's day, it was located in the southern region of the province of Macedonia. Today, it's in the northern portion of Greece. Remember, it's still there. Um, The city itself was founded in 315 B.C. and was made the capital of Macedonia in 168 B.C. In 42 B.C., Thessalonica was granted the status of a free city by the Romans. To make a long story short, when the Romans began to conquer the Mediterranean, Thessalonica picked the right side. 
And so they were granted the status as a free city. And as a free city, Thessalonica was not considered a Roman colony. Uh, they were given some leeway for their own ruling. Uh, they were allowed to make their own coins and elect their own officials. That's a big deal, especially in that time period. Geographically, Thessalonica was located along the Ignatian Way, which is a 700-mile trade and military route that stretches across northern Greece. And parts of it are still in existence today. And because of that, Thessalonica became a political and economic hub for all of Macedonia. In Paul's day, the city was a thriving metropolis of about 200,000. Today, Thessalonica and its surrounding districts have about over a million people. Just to put that in some perspective. Religiously, and now pay attention to this, this is really important. Religiously, Thessalonica was a melting pot. The people of Thessalonica worshipped many different gods, and they often worshipped gods that would help them in their trade. They believed that the gods that they worshipped correctly would help them make money and help them prosper. And they also worshipped the emperor. So remember, those things are important. We're going to come back to that later. And although these religious beliefs were inconsistent with one another, they united in their relativism and the political stability this relativism created. Again, remember that. And I described Thessalonica for several different reasons, but this is by far the most important. I really want you to get this. What does Thessalonica sound like to you? Freedom, wealth, political influence, an embrace of relativism, loyalty to its own culture. Starting to get it? Pound for pound, first century Thessalonica is comparable to any city in the United States today. Paul did not preach in some neutral environment or a fantasy world. Please remember that. But preach in a real place, a real place with a real history and a real culture that causes real problems. New England as a whole also has a history and a culture and its own problems. Please understand this. Just because Paul preached 2,000 years ago in a world that's different than ours does not mean that it was easier to preach the gospel then. Don't fall into the trap into thinking that we're so much different now that we have to come up with tricks and gimmicks to reach people with the gospel. Or don't fall into the trap of thinking that it's so hard now, things are so different now that I can't do it. It wasn't any easier then. Cultures may be different, but at the heart, we all have the same sin problem. And there's no reason why we can't look to Paul, who also had to deal with historical and cultural problems, to help us win the lost. No reason for it. Let's not fall into that trap. Second important point concerns Paul's specific destination, the synagogue. Synagogue has an interesting history. In 597 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, we, we know who he is, Right? He sacked Jerusalem and set a large portion of the Jewish people into exile. During that time, the Jews wanted to preserve their identity and their religion and their culture in the wake of this ginormous paganism that surrounded them. And so they started to form what's called a synagogue. It's kind of like a church, structurally wise. And it was a place where they could come and read the Old Testament and worship and listen to a message. And they popped up all over the Roman Empire and Babylonia. And so there were hundreds of them by the day of Paul. And most major cities had a, at least one synagogue in Paul's day. 
But most importantly, at the conclusion of a service, any Jewish man could stand up and give a message. Anyone. I know it's a little different today. We wouldn't allow just anyone to come in here and give a message. But it was different. There was an opportunity there. Please remember that. And with that background in mind, let's see what Paul did in Thessalonica. Starting in verse 2, quote, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them. End quote. If you're familiar with Acts, you'll know that Paul spent much of his time, especially in the early part of his ministry, in the synagogue. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, Acts 9, verses 19 to 20. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Do you know why this is particularly significant? First half of Acts 9 is the account of Paul's conversion. In fact, according to Luke, preaching in the synagogue was the first thing that Paul did after he became a believer. Let me give you a few more examples. Acts 13.5 When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Acts 13.14 But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Acts 14.1 In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. So why did Paul do this? Why did Paul spend so much time in the synagogue? Turn quickly to Romans 10.1 for me. Here, Paul says this. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. This brings us to the first mark of a good evangelist. Love. A good evangelist loves the unsaved. Paul loved the Jewish people and had his heart set on saving his countrymen. In fact, he loved his countrymen so much that if he were able, he would have forfeited his own salvation so they could be saved. In Romans 9, 1-4, he says this, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continued grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed for Christ, for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. That's love, that you would give up your own salvation, that someone else might be saved, is a love that is most incredible. And you know, love bears all things, and love is willing to be mistreated. That's true love. In Acts 16, Luke records the account of Paul's stay in Philippi. And if you know your Bible, you'll know Paul's stay in Philippi wasn't that great. It didn't go over that well. Uh, he was beaten by a mob and thrown in prison just for presenting the gospel. That's not exactly a nice welcome. Um, in his first epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul reminds his readers of this event in chapter 2. Here, he said this, quote, For you know yourselves, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, I believe for many people this kind of experience would be enough to stop them. It would be enough to say, well, maybe I shouldn't go on. Maybe I should reevaluate my ministry. But it was not for Paul. 
He continued on even after that shameful experience because he loved his countrymen. Allow me to boldly ask you this question. Do you love your countrymen? To be completely honest, and I know I'm being recorded, I know that, but I'm going to say this anyways because I think this is important. I believe that love, or lack thereof, is one of the greatest hurdles in witnessing to people in this part of the country. I'll say this bluntly but discreetly because I am being recorded here. New Englanders have a reputation outside of New England. And we all know that's true. Several years ago, I had the privilege to go to Tennessee. And I went to a Sunday morning service. And just remember, this was one Sunday. I only had to go once. Okay, So I went one Sunday, and the man who was preaching, he was not the pastor, he was actually a missionary, I think, to Japan. And he, he came in and he filled in. And he was trying to make the point that believers can come from anywhere. And to make this point, he asked a rhetorical question. He said this, quote, Can anything good come out of the north? End quote. It was, it was an interesting experience. Probably be the only northerner in that room when that happened. Now, the answer is obviously yes. It was obviously trying to make a point there. But the fact that he used that rhetorical question is telling. It's very telling. And to be fair, you know, we New Englanders give it right back. Um, I found numerous articles when I was doing my research for this sermon and opinion pieces in media sources, like professional media sources, written from the perspective of New Englanders, criticizing Christians outside of New England for criticizing New England that it's lost. They're there. You can find them if you look hard enough. But the point is, there's no love lost between New Englanders and outsiders. And we do know that. We're aware of that. We, we live in it. We know that. But I ask you this. Do you love the people that live in your state? I think it's very easy for us not to love our neighbors. It's very easy. It's hard when we look at other parts of the country and you see these big multi-site churches and their programs and their schools and their culture, and then you look at New England and say, man, I live in the spiritually darkest part of the country. That's hard. It's very hard to do that. And, you know, it's easy to get angry at the people you think are responsible for it. But, you know, these are the people that you've grown up with. These are the people you went to school with, people you've worked with. And you know, most of them may be unbelievers, but they share similar cultural values to you. They know what it's like to go through a hard winter. They know what it's like to work in a main economy. And they know what it's like to deal with tourists. They understand. And you know, maybe New Englanders live up to their reputation, whatever that is. But you know what else New Englanders are? They're sinners who need to hear the gospel. Just like everyone else. If you don't love them, who will? I don't say that lightly. Now, before we move on from here, I want to point out the second mark of a good evangelist. This kind of goes hand in hand with the first one. So, a good evangelist takes advantage of the opportunities given to him in order to successfully share the gospel with unbelievers. For Paul, it was his Jewish heritage that allowed for those speaking engagements. Paul was able to witness to the Jewish people because he had that option available to him, personally. For most of us, our options are different. I assume most of us here are not Jewish, and we don't kind of have that speaking access. I'm assuming that. I might be wrong, but I'm 
I, I think it might be an okay assumption to assume that. But we have other opportunities that are just as effective. Allow me to ask you a question I know you've been asked before. Do you share the gospel at work? Do you share it with your coworkers? And I know you've all been asked that before, probably multiple times by different pastors and teachers. But I want you to consider this before you dismiss the question as um, just a repetition. Each and every one of you has a different skill set. Each and every one of you have been given different gifts that you use to help your families, to help your ministry, um, just to help our society. Not everyone has the ability to become a lobsterman, a teacher, a singer, a manager, or even a quilter. But some of you do. Do you take advantage of the opportunities that presents you? It might not even be at work. Are you a member of a club or a society that's exclusive? Or maybe a band? Do you take advantage of those opportunities? If Paul were alive today, now get this, even he would not have access to some of the opportunities that you have personally. He probably wouldn't be able to join a band or be a manager or maybe even work in a public school. He might not have those opportunities. But you do. In some way, you have those opportunities. So take advantage of them and seize that opportunity. And let me add one thing to that. As a Mainer, and more broadly as a New Englander, you may have access to unbelievers who might never listen to anyone else but you. We live in a culture that is slow to trust outsiders and has some tension with other cultures. They might not listen to them, but they'll listen to you. So just think about that. A good evangelist can spot the opportunities he has to share the gospel with others. Let's go ahead and move on. Uh, Luke next describes the duration of Paul's ministry efforts in the second part of verse 2. He says, quote, Then Paul, as his custom was, went in unto them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. When I was in seminary, I took a course in personal evangelism, and there's one point in that class that stuck with me to this day. Uh, Dave Early, he's a chairman of the Department of Pastoral Ministries at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, wrote a book called Evangelism Is. In that book, he documented some interesting findings by Elmer Towns. He was the co-founder of Liberty University. In the 1980s, Towns conducted a study on recent converts to Christianity. And one of the things he discovered was that new believers, on average, hear the gospel at least 3.4 times before they believed. Now, when I say hear the gospel, I'm not talking about just like living a good life or telling people that you know Jesus, but actually making a concentrated effort to tell somebody that they are a sinner and they need Jesus. They need faith in Jesus to be saved. Now, I imagine that if this survey was taken today, the number would be higher. But nevertheless, it's clear that most conversions do not take place after hearing the gospel for the first time. And I'm sure many of you can testify to that truth. And this leads to the third mark of a good evangelist. A good evangelist is persistent. He does not simply proclaim the gospel once and walk away and thinks he's done his job. Nor is he discouraged when the multitudes do not respond to the gospel message after the first hearing. Paul spent at least three weeks in Thessalonica. And when we reflect upon the study that Towns conducted, I believe Paul had good reason for doing this. Allow me to make this personal. Did you believe the gospel when you first heard it? 
if we did not come to the faith right away, why do we assume others will? Why do we assume that we can give a speech and present a few Bible verses one time and that's going to work? Why do we assume that? Why do we get so discouraged when others reject the gospel? Especially when we're aware of what the Bible says about unbelievers. Maybe we're not aware of that. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is a really important quote, passage that you should probably know by heart. Let me read that to you. This is Paul speaking. He said, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Bible tells us that believers are spiritually discerned. Think that might be an obstacle to evangelism? Now look at uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. to Here's what Paul says. He says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the gods of this age have blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So not only are believers, excuse me, unbelievers, spiritually discerned, but Satan is actively working to blind men from the truth. This is why sound theology is so important. We cannot be so naive to think that multitudes of men who are enslaved in their sin and blinded by Satan will simply respond to the gospel after we give it to them for the first time. To be a good evangelist, you have to know what you're up against. And you have to be willing to face rejection. But you know, you might have been that third time. Sometimes you don't know that. The successful evangelist is committed to persistence. And after Luke establishes the duration of Paul's stay, he further explains Paul's method of evangelism in the rest of verse 2. And he notes that Paul, quote, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And that brings us to the fourth mark of a successful evangelist. A successful evangelist has to preach the gospel. Earlier I mentioned that the Pew Research Center stated that 60% of Mainers claim to have some affiliation with a confessing church. Well, if you remember the last time I spoke, I said this. If 60% of Mainers were actually presenting the gospel, then the state would be in a lot different place right now, wouldn't it? And I'd probably be preaching on something else. But there's clearly a problem here. Professing Mainers are not preaching the gospel. With that said, allow me to go ahead and just list those counterfeit Gospels for you. It's always good to get a reminder of that. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that the Gospel? Nope. God fills that Jesus-shaped hole in your heart and makes you feel accepted. Is that the Gospel? If you believe in God, then He's going to solve all your problems. Is that the Gospel? Nope. If I come to church every Sunday and try really hard to be a good person, then God will accept me. Is that the gospel? There's only one gospel, and that is salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who, by his blood, has provided an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That is the gospel that Paul preached, and that's the one we need to preach. I believe it's always healthy to be reminded of that. Of course, it's not enough to preach the gospel but you have to preach the gospel well. 
I say that again. It's not enough to preach the gospel, but we have to preach the gospel well. The first part of verse 2 stated this, that Paul, quote, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, end quote. In Thessalonica, Paul laid out a case and reason for the gospel based upon what he knew the Jews believed. That would not have been an easy task. In that day, there was a widespread belief among the Jewish people that the Messiah was going to return, defeat the Romans, and establish his kingdom. Even Jesus' disciples had that on their mind. If you look in Acts 1-6, to they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, that was after Jesus had been resurrected. So that's what they were thinking about. Paul had to face that understanding and convince the people that the Messiah had to suffer first. And to do that, Paul had to present a case and argue with them. And that brings us to the fifth mark of a successful evangelist. It is not enough for a successful evangelist to know the gospel, but he must be able to demonstrate the truthfulness of that gospel. The Jews in Thessalonica needed proof that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul had to give them that first before he could preach the gospel. We Mainers and New Englanders have our own concerns, don't we? Yeah, see, here's the thing. If you think that preaching the gospel in this culture is simply reciting John 3.16 to an unbeliever, good luck to you. And I can hear the criticism, Dan. You are disrespecting the simplicity of the gospel. You're completely disrespecting it. This is how I respond to that. I'd say that that response completely disregards the fact that we preach the gospel to real people who live in a real culture. Our culture is completely saturated in secular humanism. All of our biggest institutions, education, politics, religion, medicine, the media, are driven by that philosophy. And that affects the way people think and act. Let me put this in perspective. Children who are born in our culture spend 13 years in an education system that has no place for the Christian faith. And if it is brought up, it's always in a negative. Then if they go on to a secular college, they're going to get another four years of that even more intensely. While they're taking education, they're going to be absorbed in a media that has nothing good to say about Christ and a political system that has nothing good to say about them either. And because of the numbers, probably most of these people have never met a real Christian in their life. So with that said, when you go up to them and say, would you like to take a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? What do you think they're going to say to you? I mean, really, I'm being recorded, so I won't repeat it. But the point is, if you want a witness in this culture, then you need to be able to make a case for your faith. You have to be able to do that. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and get a master's or doctorate degree in theology, unless, of course, you're field called to that, and that's great. Um, I would be very excited to hear that. But nevertheless, in some situations, it might actually hurt you. That could hurt you in some context. And why I'm telling you this is that you need to know your faith and be prepared to explain your case as to why you believe. And that case is going to vary depending upon the context. It'll be different with each and every one of you because of the own witnessing opportunities you have. But nevertheless, you need to be prepared. How do you become prepared? Well, I'd start by studying your Bible. I know that's really simplistic, but in my previous sermon, I referenced the statistic that 67% of Mainers never read Scripture and only 21% read once a week. You think that might impact our evangelistic efforts? 
maybe just a little bit? I wouldn't doubt it. How do you share your faith when you don't even know what it is? And I'll tell you, you'll be surprised at how quickly the fear of evangelism will subside when you actually know what you're talking about. Be very surprised. And so, you know, Paul does all of these things. And look at what happens as a result of Paul's preaching in verse 4. He says that some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few prominent women. Paul's evangelistic efforts produced results. Paul preached the word at Thessalonica, and he won people to Christ that he wasn't even trying to get. And that's the happy, exciting part of this passage. We learned how the successful evangelist presents the gospel to the greatest effect. But there's a second part. And this part's not pleasant, but we do need to know about it because we have to face it. And we need to know how to handle it. Beginning in verse 5, Luke records a different response to Paul's preaching. He notes, But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious, took some men from the marketplace, and gathered a mob, set all the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. That's a very disturbing picture of the opposition Paul faced. Although I'm sure Paul was getting used to it at this point. The first group, the Jews who did not believe, attacked Paul because, now get this, they were envious, not because they believed he was wrong. Now these Jews sought out, quote, evil men from the marketplace. The King James Version describes these men as, quote, lewd fellows of the baser sort. I love the way the King James describes these men. But we know these kinds of men. They're the bad guys in town. And we know who they are. And they're the perfect kind of men that will start a riot. And they did. But you know what? You know what I find is interesting about this statement? Is that Paul's Jewish opponents who professed to know God even associated themselves with these kinds of men. That was, would have been unheard of in their culture. And they knew that if they said the right thing to the right people, they could do it. They could start that riot. Remember I said that the city of Thessalonica was loyal to Rome? that its livelihood was based upon their freedom, being a free city. If you could convince the Thessalonians that they would lose their freedom if they accepted Christ, you think that would get them scared? Even the tough bad guys? Sure. I mean, we don't, but that's completely foreign to us, right? Because we, no one uses fear tactics anymore, right? Right. So that brings us to the sixth mark of a good evangelist. The successful evangelist knows that rejection is not always about the truth. One of the greatest fears of evangelism is a fear of rejection or fear of not being able to answer someone's questions. And it's very easy to get discouraged when those things happen. And when that happens, we start to question, is there something wrong with my evangelistic abilities? Man, those guys in the videos make it look really easy and they keep telling me about their own successes and people coming to Christ. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I'm not good enough to do this. Or we start to question harder. Maybe the gospel's wrong. And so these things start going through our mind, but you know, whether an unbeliever admits this or not, the harder rejection is not the truth. It's in rebellion. If you look at Romans 1, uh, verses 18 to 23, Paul says this, quote, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known to them, known of God, excuse me, is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
So they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. There's a lot going on in this passage. I won't lie to you. But one thing's for certain. All men know God exists because he's revealed it to them. But instead of believing, they suppress the truth. Whether they admit the God of Scripture is real or not is irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. Here's the point. Don't question either the truth or successful evangelism because men reject it. Because it's not always about the truth. Verses 6 to 8 show us the result of that riot. Uh, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren of the, to the rules of the city, crying out, Those who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. I made the comment earlier that Thessalonica was a free city. I also made the comment that the people of Thessalonica often worshipped gods. They believed it helped them in their livelihood. They were also content living in a free city in which their freedom was safeguarded by the Romans. And thus the city was very loyal to Rome. Any other faith that was contrary to such relativism and political stability would have threatened their livelihood. Think that happens today. You think that men reject the gospel because it might give them a disadvantage in their life or in their society? It's certainly not advantageous to be a believer in New England or in Maine. It might be in other parts of the country, but not here. New Englanders are also very loyal to their life and worldview. You think that might influence people's perspective of the gospel here? Again, it's not always about the truth. Please remember that. And verse 9 concludes the passage this way. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The phrasing's awkward, but essentially what's happening here is that the government of Thessalonica demanded that Jason and his friends not welcome Paul in Thessalonica again. And unfortunately, under pressure, Jason gave in and promised that Paul would not return to the city. Because of this ruling and Jason's actions, Paul had to flee the city. And here's where I conclude with the seventh and final characteristic. The successful evangelist does not give in and does not quit. Paul was sent away from Thessalonica, but he didn't stop preaching. If we're to read on, we'd learn that Paul moved south to Berea. And as we know, Paul was very successful in Berea. Furthermore, he did not give up on Thessalonica. Although he had to flee the city, Paul still had an interest in Thessalonica. In fact, we have two letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote to this city. And in spite of all the things that Paul dealt with in Thessalonica, the church in that city would become one of Paul's favorite churches. Listen to how he describes the church in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 17 to 20. He said this, But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. This is the only church Paul calls his glory and joy. Acts 17, 1-9 gives us seven marks of good evangelism. Love, an awareness of opportunity, persistence, preaching the gospel correctly, preaching the gospel well, understanding that rejection is not always about the truth, and never giving up. 
These things are things that any of you can do right here, right now in this state. I truly believe that if the church in Maine evangelized like Paul did, it would be pleasantly surprised at the results. And so I'll leave you with this question. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this opportunity to hear your word and learn from your word. And I ask that your Holy Spirit be upon us as we go out into the world and share the gospel with others. In your son's name, amen.